KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program on Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Behar, Yud Aleph Yar. And I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. In this week's Parsha, the first thing that we read about is, of course, Shemitah and Yovel. And this year, indeed, we are in a Shnat Shemitah, and, and we should take note of the significance of reading the Parsha this week as a result. Um, additionally, we are in the midst of Sefirat Omer, and some elements of Sefirat Omer are indeed similar to the Yovel, and it's on this point that I would like to discuss a specific idea and and get a larger message out of this whole idea of counting. What is counting? Throughout Judaism, we are constantly demanded to count. We have Shabbat, and we have a Brit Milah on the eighth day. In order to get to Shabbat, I need to count the days of the week, and know that now it's the seventh day, it's Shabbat, and I need to count the days since my son is born in order to know when the eighth day is, so I can do a Brit Milah. Similarly, I need to count to the 15th day of Tishrei in order to know when Chag Sukkot is, and I need to count seven days in order to know how long a person is Tamei for, Tamei Met, or Tamei Nida. Constantly we are demanded to count in Judaism. However, seldom does the Torah actually command us to count. There are three, or four, depending on how we count, explicit mitzvot in the Torah, where the Torah demands of us to count. We've mentioned two of them. We'll just mention them briefly again. Sfirat HaOmer. Usfartem lachem imachorat ha-shabbat, miyama ve'achem et omer, tenufa ha-sheva shabbatot mimoti, ena ad mimachorat ha-shabbat ha-shvi, tispiru chamishim l'yom. We are demanded to count from the day after the the first Yom Tov of Chag Matzot, to count seven full weeks, and eventually count 50 days, or count till the 50th day. And just as a, an aside, what are we ostensibly looking to do here? We're looking to Place the date of Chag Shavuot. Chag Shavuot is on the 50th day of this count, so we need to count 50 days in order to get to reach that 50th day. We have another counting we mentioned in this week's parsha, which is Sefarta Lacha Sheva Shabbatot Shanim Sheva Shanim Sheva Pe'amim Vayu Lacha Yemei Sheva Shabbatot Shanim Teisha V'Arbaim Shana V'Havarta Shofar Tura V'Chodesh Hashvi Be'Asar L'Chodesh Be'Yom Kippurim. Yovel 
Veshavtem Isha Lachuzato, Veisha Mishpachto Tashuvu. Those three psukim that I read from this week's parsha discuss, of course, the mitzvah of counting seven years, seven times, 49 years, in order to reach the 50th year, the 50th year being the Yovel year, the Jubilee year, in which two major, or three major elements happens, the Shemitah year, but more importantly, it's a year where slaves are freed and landowners retrieve their lands that they might have sold out of need in the past. So once again, an explicit time where the Torah tells us to count. And here I'll begin raising the question, if there's so many times where we need to count, why doesn't the Torah always command us to count? Count seven days, and on the seventh day it's Shabbat. Count six days on the seventh day it's Shabbat. And if it's obvious that if I tell one that on the seventh day something is happening, that he needs to count it, and I don't need to command him to do so, why do we need to command Am Yisrael, why does God need to command Am Yisrael to count Sirat HaOmer to get to the 50th day? Why can't we simply say, on the 50th day from the Korban HaOmer, is Chag Shavuot, and we'll all know that we need to open up our calendar and count 50 days, and we'll reach the 50th day. Why the need to command us to count? Similarly, we have a concept of Shemitah, which is, to a certain extent, independent of the Yovel, which on the seventh year we keep Shemitah. The Torah doesn't command us to count those years until Shemitah, but by the very essence of saying that on the seventh year something different happens, we know that we need to keep track of the years and count them. But we're not commanded to do so. Yet when it comes to Yovel, here the Torah demands of us to count the years in order to reach the 50th year. So, why count? Why shouldn't all the mitzvot that involve counting by their very nature, why does the Torah not formulate the mitzvah of counting? And if the Torah decided not to formulate the mitzvah of counting because it's obvious that we need to count, so then why in these mitzvot that we mentioned, Sfirat HaOmer and Sfirat HaYovel, do we need to actually count? What is the message? What does counting mean? The final examples of counting, in my mind, shed light on this issue. The first time that the mitzvah of counting appears in the Torah is by Tumat Zav and Zava. And here I mentioned that there's three or four examples the reason is that both of the examples are by Zav and Zava, and they are similar. Zav and Zava, a Zav is a man who is having an issue, uh, which is some sort of illness, perhaps related to gonorrhea, um, which makes him tameh, which makes him impure. And in order for him to be pure, he has to st- this issue has to stop coming out of his body. And then... For seven days, he has to maintain that he has been clean of the illness, and only after seven clean days, he can submerge himself in the mayim of a mayan, of, of a natural body of water, and purify himself. Similarly, a zava is a woman who menstruates at a non-expected time for at least three days, who now, in order to be, who is now Tmeah, and in order to become Tahora, she has to count seven clean days where she sees no menstruation blood, 
And after those seven clean days, she can immerse herself in a mikveh and become tehora. Now here, the Torah uses the term of counting once again. It says, by azav, v'safar lo shivayamim, and by azava, v'safar lo shivayamim v'achar titar. Now again, in the world of Tumah, the seven-day period is very prevalent. There are seven days of Anida, there are seven days of Tamemet, seven days of Hesker for a Mitzorah, and so on and so forth. And obviously, if there are seven days of Tumah, I know that I need to count them. Yet, the Torah doesn't demand and use the term Vesafar or Vesafra. And only by Zav and Zavad do we find the term Vesafar, Vesafra, to count. So what does counting mean? So here we have an example where we really understand what's going on. The Zav and Zava, as opposed to other Tumot, have an active role during these seven days. They are not just commanded to wait seven days, and after a seven-day waiting period, they can become Tahor again. They are actively involved in their purification process. They are constantly checking their bodies to see that they are well, and that whatever was problematic before has passed. They're checking themselves, they're involved. The Safarla, they're checking, they're constantly following this process of the seven days. And only after following this process and being involved in this process of seven clean days can they actually be pure, can they purify themselves. As opposed to that, other tumot, the involvement of the person in the, the week of Tumah is irrelevant. For example, if we take the Mitzorah who is in Hezger, who is closed off for seven days when the, 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 the ailment of the Tzarat and his skin is first identified and not clarified if it's 100% Tameh or not, I like to say he could set an alarm clock for seven days from now, go to sleep, take some sleeping pills, wake up in seven days, and then in seven days the Kohen will check him and see if he's okay or not. Likewise, a tamimit, with the exception of the fact that he needs hazaah, sprinkling of the the water with the mechatat on the third and seventh day, putting that aside. Similarly, anida deoraita and a yoledet deoraita. All these tumot, the the participation of the person involved is not relevant. Counting then is being involved in the process. Often, the process is overshadowed by the end of the process. One could say that the purpose of the process is just the tahara, being pure. And here the Torah says, no, you have to be involved in the process in order to reach the tahara. If you're not constantly checking and seeing if the illness, if the blood, if the issue has stopped, then you cannot be tahor. The process is crucial. Now we can take this example and throw it back to our original examples. If we're talking about Svirat Omer, we could have said that getting reaching the 50th day is the whole purpose of this counting. We need to get to Shavuot, and the Shavuot is on the 50th day, and that's why we count. But because the Torah formulated a mitzvah of counting, so then what we see is that we have to follow the process. The process is important. We cannot just appear at Shavuot after 50 days 
and be ready to accept the Torah, we have to constantly follow that process, be involved in the process, make ourselves ready, mature ourselves, just like B'nai Israel who left Mitzrayim and were slaves, they matured themselves and they prepared themselves towards Matan Torah, so too, us Jews, their offspring, who are counting Sfirat Omer, by counting Sfirat Omer, we are being involved in the process towards Matan Torah. We're not just waiting, as we said, we don't just take a sleeping pill on the second day of Sfirat Omer, on the, on the first day of Sfirat Omer, and wake up on the 50th day and boom, it's Matan Torah. We follow the process, get involved in the process, prepare ourselves towards Matan Torah. And that finally brings us to this week's Parsha, and that is the Sphira of Shanim towards Yovel. And the same message is here true as well. Beit Din is commanded to count the years towards Yovel. As we said, Yovel is a year where all landowners or private... Original landowners are entitled to their original land, and slaves are entitled to be freed. It's a year of freedom and equality. It's a year where the social values of the Torah come out very strongly. But it's once in 50 years, and it doesn't seem to pervade the value so much if it's only in 50 years. The Torah, by telling Beitin, count the years until Yovel, is telling Beitin, the leadership of the Jewish people, to be involved in the process towards Yovel, or is the way I interpret it, don't view the year 50, which is the year of freedom and equality, as a year in a vacuum, which happens once in a lifetime, once in 50 years, but rather v'safartalacha, count those years until Yovel, Beitin. The leadership should be constantly counting towards the 50th year, be involved in the process, and see that values of freedom and equality, social values, are on the agenda of the leadership throughout the 50 years. Don't just arrive at the 50th year in a vacuum, but make the 50 years moving, the 49 years coming up to the 50th year part of the process towards the 50th year. Freedom and equality are not in a vacuum on the 50th year. They are part of the leadership's agenda throughout the 50 years. So what we're stressing here is that at times, the end of the road is not always the sole purpose of our journeys. Often, the process itself that takes us to the end of the road is equally or perhaps more important than the end of the road itself. A novel idea, an important idea. We are often so interested in the end product of what we do, the degree that we get, the salary that we get, that the process itself is overlooked. And at times, the process itself is so substantive and so important that it itself justifies all that we're going through, even perhaps if there was no end of the road. 
And with this idea, we'll wrap up shortly after we hear Rav Tavori. This week is the yard site of Rav Yechezkel Landau, better known as the Noda Yehuda. Rav Yechezkel was born in Chai Cheshvan, 1713, in a city called Apt in Poland. His family was very well known. His father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather were all very well respected in the community. This family traces ancestry to Rav Yudha Hanasi. Rav Yudha Hanasi himself was traced back to Rashi. So the Rabbi Landau, the Noda Behuda, was actually a descendant of Rashi. He married at the age of 18. When he found a group of students, friends, they learned together the entire week. He wrote that even as a very young man, he used to leave his house on Shabbos, spend the entire week completely immersed in learning with his friends, and he writes very complimentarily about his wife that she was always my Azer. She lived and suffered a type of loneliness because she realized that her husband was learning and becoming a major Tamid Chacham. At a very young age, Rabbi Kalanda was appointed as a Rav in a city called Yampul, but he lived there until 1755 when he moved to Prague and became known as the Rav of Prague, and he remained there his entire life. Of course, in Prague, besides being the Rav of the city, he was also involved in a yeshiva. He also wrote many, many svarim, which we will soon discuss. As a Rosh Hashiva, he said four shiurim a day, to four different groups of students, which is really a lot of work for a person who was also the Rav of the city and also was involved in his own writing, in his own Sfarim. The fame of the note of Rav Cheska Landau today is basically most known for the Sefer Noda Yehuda, which are Sheilot Chuvot which were asked to him, and he responded both at the time when he was in Yampul and in the time when he was in Prague. We will get back to certain of the tshuvas of the Noda Bihuda in a few minutes. But besides the Noda Bihuda, the Rabbi Cheska Landau wrote other Sfarim, the Sefer Tzlach, Tziyun Lenefesh Chaya, is, are his Chidushim, on certain Mesechtas of Shas. The Sefer seems to have been dedicated to his mother, whose name was Chaya. And Siyon Lunefesh Chaya is a, a, a note to commemorate the, the Nefesh of Chaya. Those Chidushim, although in my experience they're not as well used as uh, later Achronim or other Achronim, but nevertheless they are Sometimes, especially when Brachos and Psachim, 
some very, very important comments of the Noda Yehuda, but it's known as the Noda Yehuda's comments rather than the Tzlach's comments. He's more famous for the Tzlach. He also wrote Sifrei Drush. He also wrote Svarim of speeches that he made in his community. The Sefer called Yaros Devash is also a very important Sefer, but I don't think it is that well used today. In those Svarim of Drush, you also see the issues that confronted Reb Rev Yechezkel Landau at that time, the muster that he felt that he had to give to the community at that time. For example, he wrote about the fact that people wear shatnes, and he tried to dissuade them, of course, from that Easter. Or he wrote about proper kavana in tefillah, and this seems to be one of the major issues that he felt. It's just ironic to see how these issues of two, three hundred years ago still occur today. Another part of the literary output of, of Chezka Landau are comments that he made on the Shulchan Aruch. In the big Shulchan Aruch, the standard printed Shulchan Aruch, the comments of Rav Chezka Landau are printed and are called Dagul Merevava. Now, again, these are short comments, and I found that even in yeshivas, where they learn the Shulchan Aruch, many times the people know there's a Dagul Merevava, but they don't even know who wrote it. So, when you want to identify the Sefer, you say, it's the Dagul Merevava written by, by the Noda Yehuda. So, his most famous Sefer, and the one that is most used today, is the Noda Yehuda. In the world of Psak. The Noda Yehuda is an extremely important sefer even today. And it's interesting to note, for example, in the Igros Moshe or in uh, other classic 20th century svarim, how often the Noda Yehuda is used as a source and discussed. Some of the major issues that confronted him at that time are also interesting in a biographical and historical setting. He was one of the people that was asked to adjudicate in the issue of the tremendous machlokas between Rabbi Yonas and Eibshitz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden. When Rabbi Yonas and Eibshitz was accused of being a follower of Shabtai Tzvi, so the camps were split in different directions, and it was a tremendous argument. They, one of the gdolim that was recognized by all people, by all sides, and therefore, they felt he was a proper person to intervene and try to see really to determine the truth. Was Rabbi Yonas and was was Rabbi Chazkalandel the Noda Behuda? And he, in fact, wrote a pamphlet. It seems about this issue. He called it Igeret Hashalom. He wanted to try to make peace, and because of that, he did not want to put Rabbi Yonas and Eibshitz in Cherem. But nevertheless, he said the Kameas, those amulets that he had issued, he said not to use them anymore. So this approach where his purpose actually was to try to still the argument, the, the, the debate, and try to somehow maneuver and make peace between the camps was almost doomed to failure because some people claimed that he was on one side, some people claimed that he was on another side. It requires a little bit of real study to really determine what his position was on this issue. 
There are a number of books written about Rabbi Cheska Landau. The older books that I'm aware of were a uh, monograph written by uh, Shlomo Wind of uh, New York, on, which was written about 1961, where he wrote a book about Rabbi Cheska Landau. It was printed by Mossad Rav Cook. Interestingly enough, more or less at the same time, another book was written, also published by Mossad Rav Cook, called Hanoda Behuda Mishnaso from Aryeh Gelman. In these books, they there are serious discussions about the attitude of Rabbi, Yon- of Rabbi Cheska Landau toward Rabbi Yonas and Eibshitz. And there has been much more scholarship done in later years. Another issue that was faced head-on at that time was the issue of Hasidus and the beginning of the Musr, or some of the Muslim movement, which was also traced to Hasidus. The Yechezka Landau, the Noda Behuda, was quite opposed to certain practices of the Hasidic movement, which also became somewhat part of the Muslim movement. And he, for example, was against the uh, the, the uh, custom that was instituted of saying L'Shem Yichud. Before doing a mitzvah, people used to talk about esoteric kavanos, esoteric uh, reasons and ideas behind the mitzvahs, and, Reb, and the Noda Buda uh, tried to abolish that statement. In, in, there's a very famous statement where he wrote, Tzadikim Yelchubam v'chasidim yikashlubam, that Hasidim stumble about certain things, and then apparently the text was changed, and there's a whole story about the exact phraseology that was written by the Noda Behuda. The custom of extreme asceticism to atone for Averos, to atone for certain sins, was also opposed by Rav Landau. There was a custom, many people used to have this custom of a body affliction as a method of atonement. They used to roll in the snow and do all kinds of of what they called in Hebrew sigufim, some sort of afflictions to themselves. And Rav Chezkalanda, the Nodabita, was quite opposed to that as well. His status in the community of Prague, of course, was so well uh, established. His reputation was not hurt by the positions that he took about uh, these issues. And it's known that even the Baal Shem Tov and others considered Rabbi Yechezka Landau one of the Gedolei Hador and treated him with utmost respect. He also enjoyed political connections where in the city of Prague and again in these biographies they discussed his connection with the emperors, with the leaders of the, of the non-Jewish community and how he exerted influence in certain issues that affected the Jewish community. The Another issue that was discussed by Rafi Cheskalanda, the Noda Behuda, was the Haskala movement, and specifically he dealt with the translation of Mendelssohn to Chumash. Here also, the beginning of the uh, translation was approved by many people, and they made positive comments, and they used to quote Mendelssohn. The, the, uh, 
Rev. Rechezkalanda um, was asked also about this. Again, it seems to ha- he seems to have had somewhat ambivalent approach. He recommended another translation, not necessarily Rev. Mendelssohn's translation, but nevertheless, he seems to have approved the translation. Again, more serious work would have to be done to determine his exact position. I'd like mention, to mention, of course, his main work, the Noda Behuda, and point out that some of the decisions, some of the Psokim of in Noda Behuda have been so important until this very day that they are the major, uh, one of the major sources that have to be discussed in order to reach a decision about these issues. One of them, of course, is the issue of autopsies. At the time of Noda Behuda, it was the beginning of the time when autopsies were really used as a uh, regular device or wanted to be used in order to determine the cause of death and therefore to try to see how in the future we could save uh, the lives of the people who died in such a manner. The classic uh, approach of Rabbi, of Rabbi, of Rabbi Cheskalando, of the Node Behuda, was known as, he said, the, the heter can only be if the sakana is lefaneinu. He said, if there is an immediate cause where you think that you can save someone's life, then autopsies are permitted. However, in generally, in most cases, these people were studying medicine in order to discuss issues that might arise in the future. It could even be in the distant future. So the the statement of Rabbi, of, of Rabbi Cheskalanda was known to be a chumrah in that particular case, a more severe teaching, where for the for our practical purposes, he said you can't do autopsies. Because the case of having someone on the next table who was suffering from the same disease, and which would allow me to do the autopsy, this situation would have been rather rare. The, uh, however, the heter of Rabbi Yonas is that when there is a sakana lefaneinu, when there is a case in front of us, so then you would be allowed to do autopsies has been discussed in modern times. Since we have today a world of instant communication all over the world, and even though in the particular locale in which you uh, the person is found, there might not be any immediate case where this autopsy would, would help, but around the world we could have cases. And today with our instant communication, perhaps the definition of the Sakana Lefaneinu would be applicable in many, many more cases. So therefore, this tshuva became a very important topic in discussing the issue of autopsies. The other examples of his famous psakim are almost too numerous to mention. This week is the Yartzeit of the Noda Behuda, whose tshuvas, Noda Behuda, will probably be used until the final decisions are rendered eventually one day. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. In one of Rav Cook's essays, he discusses 
an idea that we find in Chazal relating to Tam Eitzov Tam Pirio Shavim, that at a time in the creation, God created the trees in such a way that the bark of the tree, the tree itself, the wood of the tree, had the same flavor as the fruit itself. Rav Cook explains this idea that this is an ideal state. Today we are very goal-oriented. In that sense of our metaphor, the fruit is all we're interested in. We grow a tree just for the fruit. I have no interest in the tree itself. I only want the fruit of the tree. And the tree is insignificant to me. And if I could get rid of the tree and still have the fruit, I would have the fruit and get rid of the tree. And Rav Cook explains that understanding that we are in a world where not only the end of the road is the purpose of what we are here for, but the process itself is an end unto itself. And that is the, symb- the, sim- the symbolism of Tam Eitzo Utam Piryoshavim. When we come to a point where the tree has flavor just like the fruit, the tree which symbolizes the process, this is an ideal state of Gan Eden and a state which we strive towards as well, where we understand that the process of getting to our goals is an equally important process. We strive towards Chag Shavuot, which is coming around. We're at the halfway mark of Sefirat Omer, just about. And we strive towards returning to an era in which we keep the Yovel year. May we learn to see the not only the fruit of our actions, but also to see and recognize and value the process that we are involved in as well. Shabbat Shalom.